This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kelly, Malinois Farm, Pembroke, Georgia. The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe. Volume 4, Chapter 16. Unnatural deeds do breed unnatural troubles. Infected minds to their deaf pillows will discharge their secrets. More needs she the divine than the physician. Macbeth. On the following evening, the view of the convent towers, rising among the shadowy woods, reminded Emily of the nun, whose condition had so much affected her, and, anxious to know how she was, as well as to see some of her former friends, she and the Lady Blanche extended their walk to the monastery. At the gate stood a carriage, which, from the heat of the horses, appeared to have just arrived, but a more than common stillness pervaded the court and the cloisters, through which Emily and Blanche passed in their way to the great hall, where a nun, who was crossing to the staircase, replied to the inquiries of the former, that Sister Agnes was still living and sensible, but that it was thought she could not survive the night. In the parlor they found several of the boarders, who rejoiced to see Emily, and told her many little circumstances that had happened in the convent since her departure, and which were interesting to her only because they related to persons whom she had regarded with affection. While they thus conversed, the abbess entered the room, and expressed much satisfaction at seeing Emily, but her manner was unusually solemn, and her countenance dejected. said she, after the first salutations were over, is truly a house of mourning. A daughter is now paying the debt of nature. You have heard, perhaps, that our daughter Agnes is dying. Emily expressed her sincere concern. Her death presents to us a great and awful lesson, continued the abbess. Let us read it and profit by it. Let it teach us to prepare ourselves for the change that awaits us all. You are young and have it yet in your power to secure the peace that passeth all understanding, the peace of conscience. Preserve it in your youth that it may comfort you in age, for vain, alas, and imperfect are the good deeds of our latter years, if those of our early life have been evil. Emily would have said that good deeds, she hoped, were never in vain, but she considered that it was the abbess who spoke, and she remained silent. The latter days of Agnes, resumed the abbess, have been exemplary. Would they might atone for the errors of her former ones. Her sufferings now, alas, are great. Let us believe that they will make her peace hereafter. I have left her with her confessor, and a gentleman, whom she has long been anxious to see, and who has just arrived from Paris. They, I hope, will be able to administer the repose which her mind has hitherto wanted. Emily fervently joined in the wish. During her illness she has sometimes named you, resumed the abbess. Perhaps it would comfort her to see you. When her present visitors have left her, we will go to her chamber, if the scene will not be too melancholy for your spirits. But indeed, to such scenes, however painful, we ought to accustom ourselves, for they are salutary to the soul, 
and prepare us for what we are ourselves to suffer. Emily became grave and thoughtful, for this conversation brought to her recollection the dying moments of her beloved father, and she wished once more to weep over the spot where his remains were buried. During the silence which followed the abbess's speech, many minute circumstances attending his last hours occurred to her. His emotion on perceiving himself to be in the neighborhood of Chateau Leblanc, his request to be interred in a particular spot in the church of this monastery, and the solemn charge he had delivered to her to destroy certain papers without examining them. She recollected also the mysterious and horrible words in those manuscripts upon which her eye had involuntarily glanced, and though they now, and indeed, whenever she remembered them, revived an excess of painful curiosity concerning their full import and the motives for her father's command, it was ever her chief consolation that she had strictly obeyed him in this particular. Little more was said by the abbess, who appeared too much affected by the subject she had lately left, to be willing to converse, and her companions had been for some time silent from the same cause, when this general reverie was interrupted by the entrance of a stranger, Monsieur Bonnac, who had just quitted the chamber of Sister Agnes. He appeared much disturbed, but Emily fancied that his countenance had more the expression of horror than of grief. Having drawn the abbess to a distant part of the room, he conversed with her for some time, during which she seemed to listen with earnest attention, and he to speak with caution, and a more than common degree of interest. When he had concluded, he bowed silently to the rest of the company, and quitted the room. The abbess soon after proposed going to the chamber of Sister Agnes, to which Emily consented, though not without some reluctance, and Lady Blanche remained with the boarders below. At the door of the chamber they met the confessor, whom, as he lifted up his head on their approach, Emily observed to be the same that had attended her dying father. But he passed on, without noticing her, and they entered the apartment, where, on a mattress, was laid Sister Agnes, with one nun watching in the chair beside her. Her countenance was so much changed that Emily would scarcely have recollected her, had she not been prepared to do so. It was ghastly, and overspread with gloomy horror. Her dim and hollow eyes were fixed on a crucifix, which she held upon her bosom, and she was so much engaged in thought as not to perceive the abbess and Emily till they stood at the bedside. Then, turning her heavy eyes, she fixed them in wild horror upon Emily, and screaming exclaimed, Ah, the vision comes upon me in my dying hours! Emily stared back in terror, and looked for explanation to the abbess, who made her signal not to be alarmed, and calmly said to Agnes, Daughter, I have brought Mademoiselle St. Aubert to visit you. I thought you would be glad to see her. Agnes made no reply, but still gazing wildly upon Emily, exclaimed, It is her very self! Oh, there is all that fascination in her look which proved my destruction! What would you have? What is you came to demand? Retribution? It will soon be yours. It is yours already. How many years have passed since last I saw you? 
my crime is but as yesterday, yet I am grown old beneath it, while you are still young and blooming. Blooming is when you force me to commit that most abhorred deed. Oh, could I once forget it, yet what would that avail? The deed is done. Emily, extremely shocked, would now have left the room, but the abbess, taking her hand, tried to support her spirits and begged she would stay a few moments, when Agnes would probably be calm, whom now she tried to soothe. But the latter seemed to disregard her, while she still fixed her eyes on Emily, and added, What are years of prayers and repentance? They cannot wash out the foulness of murder. Yes, murder! Where is he? Where is he? Look! There! Look! There! See where he stalks along the room? Why do you come to torment me now? continued Agnes, while her straining eyes were bent on air. Why was I not punished before? Oh, do not frown so sternly. Ha! There again, till she herself. Why do you look so piteously upon me and smile too? Smile on me. What groan was that? Agnes sunk down, apparently lifeless, and Emily, unable to support herself, leaned against the bed, while the abbess and the attendant nun were applying the usual remedies to Agnes. Peace, said the abbess, when Emily was going to speak. The delirium is going off. She will soon revive. When was she thus before, daughter? Not of many weeks, madam, replied the nun. But her spirits have been much agitated by the arrival of the gentleman she wished so much to see. Yes, observed the abbess, that has undoubtedly occasioned this paroxysm of frenzy. When she is better, we will leave her to repose. Emily very readily consented. But, though she could now give little assistance, she was unwilling to quit the chamber while any might be necessary. When Agnes recovered her senses, she again fixed her eyes on Emily, but their wild expression was gone, and the gloomy melancholy had succeeded. It was some moments before she recovered sufficient spirits to speak. She then said feebly, The likeness is wonderful. Surely it must be something more than fancy. Tell me, I conjure you, she added, addressing Emily, though your name is St. Aubert, are you not the daughter of the Marchioness? What Marchioness? said Emily, in extreme surprise, for she had imagined, from the calmness of Agnes's manner, that her intellects were restored. The abbess gave her a significant glance, but she repeated the question. What Marchioness? exclaimed Agnes. I know but of one the Marchioness de Villeroy. Emily, remembering the emotion of her late father, upon the unexpected mention of this lady, and his request to be laid near to the tomb of the Villeroys, now felt greatly interested, and she entreated Agnes to explain the reason of her question. The abbess would now have withdrawn Emily from the room, who being, however, detained by a strong interest, repeated her entreaties. Bring me that casket, sister, said Agnes. I will show her to you. Yet you need only look in that mirror, and you will behold her. You surely are her daughter. Such striking resemblance is never found, but among near relations. The nun brought the casket, and Agnes, having directed her how to unlock it, she took thence a miniature, 
in which Emily perceived the exact resemblance of the picture which she had found among her late father's papers. Agnes held out her hand to receive it, gazed upon it earnestly for some moments in silence, and then, with a countenance of deep despair, threw up her eyes to heaven and prayed inwardly. When she had finished, she returned the miniature to Emily. Keep it, said she. I bequeath it to you, for I must believe it is your right. I have frequently observed the resemblance between you, but never, till this day, did it strike upon my conscience so powerfully. Stay, sister, do not remove the casket. There is another picture I would show. Emily trembled with expectation, and the abbess again would have withdrawn her. Agnes is still disordered, said she. You observe how she wanders. In these moods she says anything, and does not scruple, as you have witnessed, to accuse herself of the most horrible crimes. Emily, however, thought she perceived something more than madness in the inconsistencies of Agnes, whose mention of the Marchioness and production of her picture had interested her so much that she determined to obtain further information, if possible, respecting the subject of it. The nun returned with the casket, and Agnes pointing out to her a secret drawer, she took from it another miniature. Here, said Agnes, as she offered it to Emily, learn a lesson for your vanity. At least, look well at this picture, and see if you can discover any resemblance between what I was and what I am. Emily impatiently received the miniature, which her eyes had scarcely glanced upon, before her trembling hands had nearly suffered it to fall. It was the resemblance of the portrait of Signora Lorente, which she had formerly seen in the castle of Udolpho, the lady who had disappeared in so mysterious a manner, and whom Montoni had been suspected of having caused to be murdered. In silent astonishment, Emily continued to gaze alternately upon the picture and the dying nun, endeavoring to trace a resemblance between them, which no longer existed. "'Why do you look so sternly on me?' said Agus, mistaking the nature of Emily's emotion. "'I have seen this face before,' said Emily at length. "'Was it really your resemblance?' "'You may well ask that question,' replied the nun. "'But it was once esteemed a striking likeness of me. "'Look at me well, and see what guilt has made me. "'I then was innocent. "'The evil passions of my nature slept. "'Sister,' added she solemnly, "'and stretching forth her cold, damp hand to Emily, "'who shuddered at its touch. "'Sister, beware of the first indulgence of the passions. "'Beware of the first. Their course, if not checked then, is rapid. Their force is uncontrollable. They lead us we know not whither. They lead us, perhaps, to the commission of crimes, for which whole years of prayer and penitence cannot atone. Such may be the force of even a single passion, that it overcomes every other, and sears up every other approach to the heart. Possessing us like a fiend, it leads us on to the acts of a fiend, making us insensible to pity and to conscience. And when its purpose is accomplished, like a fiend, it leaves us to the torture of those feelings, which its power had suspended, not annihilated, to the tortures of compassion, remorse, and conscience. Then we awaken, 
as from a dream and perceive a new world around us. We gaze in astonishment and horror, but the deed is committed. Not all the powers of heaven and earth united can undo it, and the specters of conscience will not fly. What are riches, grandeur, health itself, to the luxury of a pure conscience? The health of the soul, and what the sufferings of poverty, disappointment, despair, to the anguish of an afflicted one? Oh, how long is it since I knew that luxury! I believed that I had suffered the most agonizing pangs of human nature in love, jealousy, and despair. But these pangs were ease compared with the stings of conscience, which I have since endured. I tasted, too, what was called the sweet of revenge, but it was transient. It expired even with the object that provoked it. Remember, sister, that the passions are the seeds of vices as well as of virtues, from which either may spring, accordingly as they are nurtured. Unhappy they who have never been taught the art to govern them. Alas, unhappy, said the abbess, and ill-informed of our holy religion. Emily listened to Agnes in silent awe, while she still examined the miniature, and became confirmed in her opinion of its strong resemblance to the portrait at Udolpho. This face is familiar to me, said she, wishing to lead the nun to an explanation, yet fearing to discover too abruptly her knowledge of Udolpho. You are mistaken, replied Agnes. You certainly never saw that picture before. No, replied Emily, but I have seen one extremely like it. Impossible, said Agnes, who may now be called the Lady Laurentini. It was in the castle of Udolpho, continued Emily, looking steadfastly at her. Of Udolpho, exclaimed Laurentini. Of Udolpho in Italy? The same, replied Emily. You know me then, said Laurentini, and you are the daughter of the Marchioness. Emily was somewhat surprised at this abrupt assertion. I am the daughter of the late Mont Saint Aubert, said she, and the lady you name is an utter stranger to me. At least you believe so, rejoined Laurentini. Emily asked what reasons there could be to believe otherwise. The family likeness that you bear her, said the nun. The Marchioness, it is known, was attracted to a gentleman of Gascony, at the time when she accepted the hand of the Marquis, by the command of her father. Ill-fated, unhappy woman! Emily, remembering the extreme emotion which Saint-Aubert had betrayed on the mention of the Marchioness, would now have suffered something more than surprise, had her confidence in his integrity been less. As it was, she could not, for a moment, believe what the words of Laurentini insinuated, yet she still felt strongly interested concerning them, and begged that she would explain them further. "'Do not urge me on that subject,' said the nun. "'It is to me a terrible one. Would that I could blot it from my memory.' She sighed deeply, and after the pause of a moment asked Emily by what means she had discovered her name. "'By your portrait in the castle of Udolpho.' to which this miniature bears a striking resemblance, replied Emily. You have been at Udolpho then, said the nun, with great emotion. Alas, what scenes does the mention of it revive in my fancy? Scenes of happiness, of suffering, and of horror. 
At this moment, the terrible spectacle which Emily had witnessed in a chamber of that castle occurred to her, and she shuddered, while she looked upon the nun and recollected her late words, that years of prayer and penitence could not wash out the foulness of murder. She was now compelled to attribute these to another cause than that of delirium. With a degree of horror that almost deprived her of sense, she now believed she looked upon a murderer. All the recollected behavior of Laurentini seemed to confirm the supposition. Yet Emily was still lost in a labyrinth of perplexities, and, not knowing how to ask the questions which might lead to the truth, she could only hint them in broken sentences. Your sudden departure from Udolpho, said she. Laurentini groaned. The reports that followed it, continued Emily. The west chamber, the mournful veil, the object it conceals, when murders are committed. The nun shrieked. What? There again, said she, endeavoring to raise herself, while her staring eyes seemed to follow some object around the room. Come from the grave. What? Blood, blood, too. There was no blood. Thou canst not say it. Nay, do not smile. Do not smile so piteously. Laurentini fell into convulsions as she uttered the last words, and Emily, unable any longer to endure the horror of the scene, hurried from the room and sent some nuns to the assistance of the abbess. The Lady Blanche and the boarders, who were in the parlor, now assembled around Emily, and alarmed by her manner and a frightened countenance, asked a hundred questions, which she avoided answering further than by saying that she believed Sister Agnes was dying. They received this as a sufficient explanation of her terror, and had then leisure to offer restoratives, which at length somewhat revived Emily, whose mind was, however, so much shocked with the terrible surmises and perplexed with doubts by some words from the nun that she was unable to converse, and would have left the convent immediately had she not wished to know whether Laurentini would survive the late attack. After waiting some time, she was informed that the convulsions having ceased, Laurentini seemed to be reviving, and Emily and Blanche were departing when the abbess appeared, who, drawing the former aside, said she had something of consequence to say to her. But as it was late, she would not detain her then, and requested to see her on the following day. Emily promised to visit her, and having taken leave, returned with the Lady Blanche towards the chateau, on the way to which the deep gloom of the woods made Blanche lament that the evening was so far advanced, for the surrounding stillness and obscurity rendered her sensible of fear, though there was a servant to protect her, while Emily was too much engaged by the horrors of the scene she had just witnessed to be affected by the solemnity of the shades, otherwise than as they served to promote her gloomy reverie, from which, however, she was at length recalled by the Lady Blanche, who pointed out at some distance, in the dusky path they were winding, two persons slowly advancing. It was impossible to avoid them without striking into a still more secluded part of the wood, whither the strangers might easily follow, but all apprehension vanished when Emily distinguished the voice of Monsieur de Pont, and perceived that his companion was the gentleman whom she had seen at the monastery, and who was now conversing with so much earnestness as not immediately to perceive their approach. 
When Dupont joined the ladies, the stranger took leave, and they proceeded to the chateau, where the Count, when he heard of Monsieur Bonnac, claimed him for an acquaintance, and on learning the melancholy occasion of his visit to Languedoc, and that he was lodged at a small inn in the village, begged the favor of Monsieur Dupont to invite him to the chateau. The latter was happy to do so, and the scruples of reserve which made Monsieur Bonnac hesitate to accept the invitation began at length overcome. They went to the chateau, where the kindness of the Count and the sprightliness of his son were exerted to dissipate the gloom that overhung the spirits of the stranger. Monsieur Bonnac was an officer in the French service and appeared to be about fifty. His figure was tall and commanding. His manners had received the last polish, and there was something in his countenance uncommonly interesting, for over features which in youth must have been remarkably handsome was spread a melancholy that seemed the effect of long misfortune rather than of constitution or temper. The conversation he held during supper was evidently an effort of politeness, and there were intervals in which, unable to struggle against the feelings that depressed him, he relapsed into silence and abstraction, from which, however, the Count sometimes withdrew him in a manner so delicate and benevolent that Emily, while she observed him, almost fancied she beheld her late father. The party separated at an early hour, and then, in the solitude of her apartment, the scenes which Emily had lately witnessed returned to her fancy with dreadful energy. That in the dying nun she should have discovered Signora Laurentini, who, instead of having been murdered by Montoni, was, as now it seemed, herself guilty of some dreadful crime, excited both horror and surprise in a high degree. Nor did the hints which she had dropped respecting the marriage of the Marchioness de Villeroy, and the inquiries she had made concerning Emily's birth, occasion her a less degree of interest, though it was of a different nature. The history, which Sister Frances had formerly related, had said to be that of Agnes, it now appeared was erroneous, but for what purpose it had been fabricated, unless the more effectually to conceal the true story, Emily could not even guess. Above all, her interest was excited as to the relation which the story of the late Marchioness de Villeroy bore to that of her father, for that some kind of relation existed between them, the grief of St. Aubert upon hearing her named, his request to be buried near her, and her picture, which had been found among his papers, certainly proved. Sometimes it occurred to Emily that he might have been the lover to whom it was said the Marchioness was attached when she was compelled to marry the Marquis de Villeroy, but that had afterwards cherished a passion for her, she could not suffer herself to believe for a moment. The papers, which he had so solemnly enjoined her to destroy, she now fancied had related to this connection, and she wished more earnestly than before to know the reasons that made him consider the injunction necessary, which had her faith in his principles been less, would have led to believe that there was a mystery in her birth dishonorable to her parents, which those manuscripts might have revealed. Reflections, similar to these, engaged her mind during the greater part of the night, and when at length she fell into a slumber, it was only to behold a vision of the dying nun, and to awaken in horrors like those she had witnessed. On the following morning, 
she was too much indisposed to attend her appointment with the abbess, and, before the day concluded, she heard that Sister Agnes was no more. Monsieur Bonnac received this intelligence with concern, but Emily observed that he did not appear so much affected now as on the preceding evening, immediately after quitting the apartment of the nun, whose death was probably less terrible to him than the confession he had been then called upon to witness. However this might be, he was perhaps consoled, in some degree, by a knowledge of the legacy bequeathed him, since his family was large, and the extravagance of some part of it had lately been the means of involving him in great distress, and even in the horrors of a prison, and it was the grief he had suffered from the wild career of a favorite son, with the pecuniary anxieties and misfortunes consequent upon it, that had given to his countenance the air of dejection which had so much interested Emily. To his friend, Monsieur Dupont, he recited some particulars of his late sufferings, when it appeared that he had been confined for several months in one of the prisons of Paris, with little hope of release, and without the comfort of seeing his wife, who had been absent in the country, endeavoring, though in vain, to procure assistance from his friends. When at length she had obtained an order for admittance, she was so much shocked at the change which long confinement and sorrow had made in his appearance, that she was seized with fits, which by their long continuance threatened her life. Our situation affected those who happened to witness it, continued Monsieur Bonnac, and one generous friend, who was in confinement at the same time, afterwards employed the first moments of his liberty in efforts to obtain mine. He succeeded. The heavy debt that oppressed me was discharged, and, when I would have expressed my sense of the obligation I had received, my benefactor was fled from my search. I have reason to believe he was the victim of his own generosity, and that he returned to the state of confinement from which he had released me, but every inquiry after him was unsuccessful. Amiable and unfortunate Valancourt. Valancourt, exclaimed Monsieur de Pont, of what family? The Valancourt's Counts de Varney, replied Monsieur Bonnac. The emotion of Monsieur de Pont, when he discovered the generous benefactor of his friend to be the rival of his love, can only be imagined. But, having overcome his first surprise, he dissipated the apprehensions of Monsieur Bonnac by acquainting him that Valancourt was at liberty, and had lately been in Languedoc after which his affection for Emily prompted him to make some inquiries respecting the conduct of his rival during his stay at Paris, of which M. Bonnac appeared to be well informed. The answers he received were such as convinced him that Valancourt had been much misrepresented, and, painful as was the sacrifice, he formed the just design of relinquishing his pursuit of Emily to a lover who, it now appeared, was not unworthy of the regard which she honored him. The conversation of M. Bonnac discovered that Valancourt, some time after his arrival at Paris, had been drawn into the snares which determined vice had spread for him, and that his hours had been chiefly divided between the parties of the captivating marchioness and those gaming assemblies to which the envy or the avarice of his brother officers had spared no art to seduce him. In these parties he had lost large sums in efforts to recover small ones, and to such losses 
the Count de Vifort and Monsieur Enray had been frequent witnesses. His resources were at length exhausted, and the Count, his brother, exasperated by his conduct, refused to continue the supplies necessary to his present mode of life, and when Valancourt, in consequence of accumulated debts, was thrown into confinement, where his brother suffered him to remain, in the hope that punishment might affect a reform of conduct which had not yet been confirmed by long habit. In the solitude of his prison, Valancourt had leisure for reflection and cause for repentance. Here, too, the image of Emily, which amidst the dissipation of the city had been obscured, but never obliterated from his heart, revived with all the charms of innocence and beauty, to reproach him for having sacrificed his happiness and debased his talents by pursuits which his nobler faculties would formerly have taught him to consider were as tasteless as they were degrading. But though his passions had been seduced, his heart was not depraved, nor had habit riveted the chains that hung heavily on his conscience, and as he retained that energy of will which was necessary to burst them, he, at length, emancipated himself from the bondage of vice but not till after much effort and severe suffering. Being released by his brother from the prison, where he had witnessed the affecting meeting between Monsieur Benoc and his wife, with whom he had been for some time acquainted, the first use of his liberty formed a striking instance of his humanity and his rashness, for with nearly all the money just received from his brother, he went to a gaming-house, and gave it as a last stake for the chance of restoring his friend to freedom, and to his afflicted family. The event was fortunate, and while he had w awaited the issue of this momentous stake, he had made a solemn vow never again to yield to the destructive and fascinating vice of gaming. Having restored the venerable Monsieur Bonnac to his rejoicing family, he hurried from Paris to Estuvere, and in the delight of having made the wretched happy, forgot for a while his own misfortunes. Soon, however, he remembered that he had thrown away the fortune without which he could never hope to marry Emily, and life, unless passed with her, now scarcely appeared supportable, for her goodness, refinement, and simplicity of heart rendered her beauty more enchanting, if possible, to his fancy than it had ever yet appeared. Experience had taught him to understand the full value of the qualities which he had before admired, but which the contrasted characters he had seen in the world made him now adore, and these reflections, increasing the pangs of remorse and regret, occasioned the deep dejection that had accompanied him even into the presence of Emily, of whom he considered himself no longer worthy. To the ignominy of having received pecuniary obligations from the Marchioness Chamfort, or any other lady of intrigue, as the Count de Vifort had been informed, or of having been engaged in the depredating schemes of gamesters, Valancourt had never submitted, and these were some of such scandals as often mingle with truth against the unfortunate. Count de Vifort had received them from authority, which he had no reason to doubt, and which the imprudent conduct he had himself witnessed in Valancourt had certainly induced him the more readily to believe. Being such as Emily could not name to the Chevalier, he had no opportunity of refuting them, and when he confessed himself to be unworthy of her esteem, he little suspected 
that he was confirming to her the most dreadful calumnies. Thus the mistake had been mutual, and had remained so, when Monsieur Bernard explained the conduct of his generous but imprudent young friend to Dupont, who, with severe justice, determined not only to undeceive the Count on this subject, but to resign all hope of Emily. Such a sacrifice as his love rendered this was deserving of a noble reward, and Monsieur Bernard, if it had been possible for him to forget the benevolent Valancourt, would have wished that Emily might accept the just Dupont. When the Count was informed of the error he had committed, he was extremely shocked at the consequence of his credulity, and the account which Monsieur Bernard gave of his friend's situation while at Paris convinced him that Valancourt had been entrapped by the schemes of a set of dissipated young men, with whom his profession had partly obliged him to associate, rather than by an indication to vice, and charmed by the humanity and noble though rash generosity which his conduct towards Monsieur Bernac exhibited, he forgave him the transient errors that had stained his youth, and restored him to the high degree of esteem with which he had regarded him during their early acquaintance. But as the least reparation he could now make Valancourt was to afford him an opportunity of explaining to Emily his former conduct, he immediately wrote to request his forgiveness of the unintentional injury he had done him, and to invite him to Chateau Leblanc. Motives of delicacy withheld the Count from informing Emily of this letter, and of kindness from acquainting her with the discovery respecting Valancourt, till his arrival should save her from the possibility of anxiety. As to its event, and this precaution spared her even severer inquietude than the Count had foreseen, since he was ignorant of the symptoms of despair which Valancourt's late conduct had betrayed. End of Volume 4 Chapter 16 Recorded December 2008 Malinois Farm, Pembroke, Georgia